We're in Matthew chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Matthew verse by verse. And John the Baptist has a ministry of preparing Israel and Jesus for the coming of the kingdom. And the way Jesus is prepared for his public ministry is through baptism. And as a result of John baptizing Jesus, the Spirit of God has descended upon Jesus. And God has declared publicly that Jesus is his Son, which in this case means that Jesus is his authorized representative on earth, that he is the King. Uh, every one of Israel's kings were declared by God to be God's Son. So David was the Son of God. Solomon was the Son of God. Uh, that didn't mean you were, you were necessarily a good guy. Okay, So there are two ways the Son of God is used in the New Testament. One, Jesus is the Son of God by the fact that he is uh, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But there's another way that title is used, and that title simply means king. And everyone who was a king was declared to be God's son by adoption. And he represented God on earth. So Jesus is declared to be God's king at his baptism. Now there's one more event that must take place to prepare Jesus for his public ministry. He must be tested. See, you can't go into being king, uh, and especially God's end-time king, without being tested. So the same spirit that anoints Jesus as king uh, drives him into the wilderness where he is tested. And you see that in verse 1. This, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the same Spirit that descends upon Jesus and authorizes him publicly to be the king now drives him into the wilderness. And again, what you see happening is that Jesus is following Israel's pattern. Israel's journey. Israel went through the water. Jesus is baptized. After Israel goes through the Red Sea, it is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's following the pattern of Israel's journey. Now what we discover is why Jesus was uh, led into the wilderness. What's the purpose of that? Look, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil, by Diabolos, by the accuser, by the slanderer, that is Satan. Just as Israel, when it was in the wilderness, was tested in many ways, so Jesus is being tested. The only difference is Jesus succeeds in passing the test, whereas Israel failed dismally. And so Jesus is God's representative on earth, and he's going to pass this test. And I want you to notice something. It's the devil who tempts. Do you see that? It's the devil who tempts. God doesn't tempt anybody. The devil tempts. But the devil does not act independently. Notice the Spirit is the one who led Jesus into the wilderness. Do you see that? To be tempted by the devil. Just as the devil couldn't tempt Job... Uh, without getting God's permission. Now, it's not just that the devil tempts Jesus. 
It says, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Look at that next word. To be tempted. You see that? God's purpose for driving him into that wilderness was so that the devil would tempt him. Jesus is being tested. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil, it is a very difficult situation. And I don't think that our text really can convey the difficulty Jesus has in the temptation. These are real temptations. It's not like the devil tempts him and Jesus quotes the scripture and just goes like this. It is a real temptation. So much so that when the disciples say, Jesus, uh, what should we pray? Would you teach us to pray? He says, let me tell you, one of the things you need to make sure that you say is, lead us not into. Because the devil led Jesus to be tempted. And he said, you don't want to have to go through that. So one of your prayers is, lead us not, should be lead us not to temptation. So even before Jesus launches his public ministry, he must confront his arch enemy and pass this test before he goes openly and begins to preach. So look at verse 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So now we see that when he goes into the desert, he goes in there from his perspective is to fast and to pray. He's having a personal retreat. He's going there for a personal retreat. He wants to be in touch with his father. But we're getting a behind-the-scenes statement in verse 1. Here's the, You want to know what's happening behind the scenes? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, in the book of Job, what do you have? Job has all these problems. And then the curtain is pulled open and you get behind the scenes and what do you have? The devil comes before God and says, now how about that guy Job? And God says, well, Job's a faithful man. And he says, oh, you know, uh, if I could just touch him. And God said, well, go on and tempt him and touch him and see if he doesn't remain faithful. That's the behind the scenes. Job doesn't know this is happening, why this is happening to him. Did you ever think of that? We know why it's happening to him, but when it's happening, Job doesn't know why it's happening. He doesn't know that this is a big deal that's been going on behind the scenes in heaven between God and the devil. And Jesus goes out there for a retreat to get in touch with God. And God's purpose for putting Jesus out there was what? To be tempted by the devil. So that's really your behind the scenes thing. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted. And of course... Israel was out in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, notice next. Let's look at this first temptation in verse 3. Temptation number 1. Now when the tempter, that's the devil's title here, just the son of God is Jesus' title. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, two things I want you to notice. First is the word if. That word means since. Since you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, because of your position, because you are the Son of God, you have certain privileges. You don't have to remain hungry. You can satisfy your hunger 
by turning these stones, and we know in the, probably the area where Jesus was, there are these black stones just hewn about, and the devil points and says, you can turn these stones into bread and satisfy your hunger. So, notice the nature of that temptation. The nature of the temptation is to bring about pride in Jesus and get Jesus to act uh, presumptuously. Since you are the Son of God, you have certain privileges. You don't have to stay hungry. You can just say, bread. And the stones would turn into bread. So pride and presumption are just the opposite of humility and, uh, and faith. Now, one other thing I want you to notice. This first temptation has to do with food. What was the first temptation that Adam and Eve had? Food. Right eating and wrong eating. Legitimate eating and illegitimate eating. Jesus' first temptation has to do with food. Just, you hungry? I know you are. After 40 days you'd be hungry. Oh, I just turned this into, into bread. So, it's very interesting how food is connected with that relationship with God. And just the other day I was thinking about this. Every event in Israel's history, every major event in Israel's history was celebrated by a feast. All has to do with food. Right eating speaks of a right relationship with God. Wrong eating speaks of a severed relationship. So that's why we have a Lord's Supper. That sustains your relationship with God. And at the end, there's a messianic banquet. The kingdom of God is like a banquet. It's like a party. So everything is linked to food when it comes to, at least in a metaphorical way, in a symbolic way, is that uh, somehow wrong eating is uh, is linked to sin. I don't know how all that works out. Now look at Jesus' response. But he answered and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice there's a negative and there's a positive. Here's the negative. Man shall not live by bread alone. Here's the positive. But, on the other side, he shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now you can see in your Bibles, this may have red letters there, or it may be in italics, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8. So I want to show you that passage. I'm not going to turn you to all of Jesus' uh, quotes, but I do want to show you this one. So go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, and find chapter 8. I'll show you the verse that Jesus quotes, and then we'll look at the context. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Deuteronomy 8. Verse 3. And here's what it says. So he humbled you. God humbled you. And it's talking to Israel. In fact, if you look at verse 2, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years. Who's leading them in the wilderness? God, who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. Why did He lead you into the wilderness? Verse 2. To humble you. Look at this. To test you. 
And what's the devil want Jesus to do? Once he's pride to rise up. Well, if you're the son of God, you can just say to these, just act presumptuously. Yeah, uh, you've got special privileges. Yeah. Oh, uh, you this guy can't say anything to the stones and turn them into bread. He's just gonna have to starve. But you know, you're the son of God. You see? Here's what God does to Israel. He takes them there to humble them and test them to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. Why are you being tested? To determine whether you will obey his word, whether you will be obedient. Verse 3. So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger. So that's what's happening to Jesus in the wilderness. And he fed you with manna. Who fed them with manna? God fed them with manna. What's the devil want Jesus to do? Turn stones into bread. Feed yourself. They not want God to do anything. Jesus has been led there and he's fasting because that's what God wants. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Jesus quotes this verse. The context is the context of food. Israel's been put into the wilderness to see if they can depend on God or whether they will succumb to the temptation. And what do they do? They start griping and complaining and say, ah, at least when we were back in Egypt, we had... Instead of trusting God. So you can see how Jesus' temptation uh, parallels Israel's temptation in the wilderness. Now go back to, to Matthew chapter 4. Now it's very interesting to me, I mean, if you wanted to draw a lesson out of this, is that Satan lures us through our natural appetites. Uh, we all get hungry. We all need to eat, but there's a legitimate and there's an illegitimate uh, means to satisfy the hunger. And when God wants you to fast, you're not to eat. And when God wants you to eat, he'll let you know. He's not going to send the devil tell you how to do this thing. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and he passes test number one. Now, look at the second temptation. Verse 5. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. That would probably be the roof of the portico. And very interestingly, he takes him to the holy city which is Jerusalem. Jews believe that Jerusalem was the center of the earth. And then he takes him to the temple, which was the most sacred place in the center of the earth, the most holy city. And then he takes him to the highest point in the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and uh, what a view you could get from there. Now, I believe this is a vision. Jesus is way out in the desert. And, uh, but I think that he has a satanic vision in the sense that Satan, not within his own mind, but Satan somehow uh, produces this vision where he's up on the top of a temple. And he sees uh, and hears uh, the devil speak. He sees the devil, he hears the devil speak, he sees the temple, he sees the city, he sees the great um, valley below. But it's all in a vision. Just like John saw the holy temple. John saw the city. It was a vision. 
What he saw was real, just as real if you saw it with your real eyes. But it was a visionary thing, I believe. I don't think Satan literally just walked him over there. I think that, uh, or transported him. I don't know that Satan has that power. But I, in either way, he's, this is what he sees. Now look at the nature of the temptation in verse 6. He said, if you're the Son of God, again, notice, since you're the Son of God, operating on that status of his, throw yourself down. Jump. Jump. This is what I want you to do. Jump. Okay? For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So now, again, we have this appeal to privilege, appeal to pride, uh, an appeal to acting presumptuously. Uh, because of who you are, you can jump off the temple and it won't hurt you. So go on and do it. Now, you would say it's very similar to that first temptation. Since you're the Son of God, you have a privileged position. Because of that, you can do certain things. You can turn the stones into bread, you can jump off the temple, even though it's 450 feet down there in that valley. Uh, right before you go down, the angel would come down and swoop you up. So, uh, but there's one difference. And the difference is, the devil quotes the Bible. This time the devil quotes scripture. He gives Jesus the basis of his argument that he won't get hurt. And he quotes Psalm 91. Now I want you to turn to the quote of the devil. So go to Psalm 91. And let's see what the devil has to say. And I want you to notice how he quotes the verse and how he misapplies it. Okay? Very interesting how he does that. He quotes Psalm 91 and verse 11. Psalm 91 and verse 11. And here's what it says. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now notice how he misapplies the verse. Doesn't talk about jumping off a roof in this verse, does it? Let's say if you decide to jump off a roof, the angels are going to take care of you. It seems to be that in your daily walk, he'll keep you from stumbling. In fact, I believe that is the context because look how the psalm opens. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now notice that. He who abides in the secret place of the Most High shall abide, or dwells, dwells in the secret place of the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of my Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my faith, and Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now, who's protected? The person who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. He shall abide under the shadow of of the Almighty. That's not jumping off of a roof. God wouldn't tell you to do that. Now look at verse 9. Because you've made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Notice all the stipulations here. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. 
notice, near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. It's only when you make God your refuge. It's only when you are walking in the will of God that God promises to protect you. Outside of God's will, you are not protected. And jumping off the top of a temple down 450 feet to a valley is not God's will. Now, the thing that gets me is that the devil quotes the scripture, but he misapplies it. Every false doctrine, every cult has scriptures upon which to hang their doctrine. Look, Jehovah's Witnesses quote scripture, don't they? But they quote it wrongly. They twist scriptures. The Mormons twist scriptures. They have scriptures, but they twist the scriptures. And so, you have to watch out. Just be, I think the devil quotes scripture like most Baptists quote scripture. He quotes the scripture, but it doesn't mean what it says. Because of the wrong interpretation. So anyway, now look at Jesus' response to the devil. Go back to Matthew 4 and verse 7. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Now, he said, if I jumped and I did that, I'd be testing God. I'd be tempting God. And uh, you shouldn't do that. So, uh, if I would jump and say, save me! Based on the fact that I'm the Son of God, that would be presumption and God would be tested and he said, you shall not protect. Uh, you shall not tempt God. Now, I know what that's like because a number of years ago, and I've told this story only once before, a number of years ago, I went to a charismatic meeting. Now, I was in my probably 20s at this point, And I was wearing, just got my glasses. And I hated these glasses. Uh, I didn't like glasses. And I went to this meeting and this guy said, just take your glasses off by faith. Take your glasses off and trust God to heal your eyes. That's what you need to do. And just take them off and don't use them anymore. Put them away. In fact, he said, I think he said, throw them away. Well, I took my glasses off. Now, Lynn and I had just been married for a week. <laughs> and uh, I took my glasses off, and we were going, I was working for Youth for Christ. I was going out to Rockford, Illinois, to uh, be trained as an executive director in Youth for Christ. And I decided I was going to take my glasses off by faith. Same as jump. You know, he'll catch you. By faith, take them off and you'll be able to see because you're a Christian. You're a child of the king. That's what the guy said. And the child of the king has privileges. The king takes care of his children. So I took them off and we started driving from Maryland out to Rockford, Illinois. And it was fine during the day because my eyes weren't real bad at that point. You know, they're not like they are now. But when it got dusk... <laughs> And we hit Gary, Indiana in the air, Gary, Indiana. Remember Gary, Indiana and the music man? Gary, Indiana, which was an industrial town in the smog. <laughs> I couldn't see anything. And there was highway construction. And I couldn't see where the barriers were. And everything looked double and blurry. And I said, oh, I've made a mistake. <laughs> I had to be out in Rockford, Illinois for about two or three weeks. And I didn't have my glasses this whole time. I couldn't wait to get home, and uh, I'm glad I didn't throw these things away. Went to my drawer and put my glasses back on, and you know the amazing thing was? When I put those glasses back on, it was a miracle. <laughs> I could see again. 
So I realized that man, he was sincere, but he was speaking for the devil, not for God. He wanted me, based on my position as a child of the king, to act presumptuously, saying that God would take care of me. If I would have hit somebody, I would have been criminally negligent. Can you imagine killing somebody in an accident, and then the police coming up and say, well, what happened? You say, I don't know. God told me to take the inflation <laughs> He would say, well, God schmod. He said, you know, you're going to be in jail. So that would have been it. So the devil wants Jesus dead. He says, jump. You know, he wants you dead, too. He wants you to act presumptuously. He wants you to make crazy decisions in the name of faith. Instead of good sense, instead of the will of God. So Jesus says, You're trying to get me to tempt God, and we're not to tempt God. So Jesus passes temptation number two. Now, the third temptation is verse eight. Then the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Again, I don't know if that's a vision or whether it's literal. It doesn't really matter, I guess. But I think it's a vision. <laughs> and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Now I know that the Roman Empire controlled all the kingdoms in the civilized world. There were kingdoms outside the Roman Empire, but they were barbarians. And the word here that says showed him all the kingdoms of the world means basically the inhabited or the civilized world. And this would have been the world that Rome controlled. Showed him the entire Roman Empire, all the kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of you know, it's like you know Ethiopia or Egypt and all these different kingdoms that Rome controlled. There's no mountain where you can actually see all that from. That's why I think it's probably a vision. No mountain so high that you can see the whole Roman Empire from one point. And uh, what he says is, showed him all these things. And their splendor, which means their wealth and their culture and their beauty, all the things that made these kingdoms great. And he said, verse 9, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, notice that Satan claims the authority to give the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. And Jesus never contradicts him. He says, well, you don't really have control of it. Because the scripture seems to indicate in some way Satan does control this world. He's uh, called the God of this world. He's called the Prince of this age. He's called uh, the... First John says the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. Uh, we know that back in the Garden of Eden, God was, creates the world, and by virtue of being creator, he's the ruler of the world. And somebody sneaks into the garden, the serpent sneaks, sneaks into the garden, and tempts them with eating food, doesn't he? And they succumb. They listen to a second voice. Up until that time, there was only one voice that they were listening to. They listened to the voice of the legitimate king, God himself. But now they listen, and God says, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and take dominion over the earth under me, under me. And guess what they do? They listen to Satan, and they come under him. And in that sense, Satan gets a hand in this world. And to the point that... Uh, the whole world ends up lying in the hands of the wicked one, and God destroys the world with a flood. And then uh, things keep, continue to get bad. Until again, it says, 
the whole world didn't what was evil and what was right in its own eyes and lived evil and the whole world no one heard God's voice anymore. They were only listening to the voice of the enemy and God takes one man out of those nations, Abram, and he says, Abram, and Abram suddenly hears God's voice. And God establishes a relationship with Abram. But the rest of the people, they're not listening to the voice of God. They're listening to the voice of the devil, the kings of those nations. And Rome is listening to the voice of Satan, not following the voice of God, that's for sure. But Jesus hears the voice of God. And Satan comes in, tempts Jesus. Now he hears the voice of Satan. It's like Adam heard God's voice and heard Satan. And Satan says, look at all this that I control. All of Romans, I'm the power behind the Roman Empire. I'm the power behind Caesar. It can all be yours. I just give it to you. Jesus never says, ah, you don't have the authority to give it to you. Because think, I think he does. And I think Jesus thinks he does. But there's a stipulation. At the end of verse 9, I'm going to give it to you. But you, if you will fall down and worship me. This is a pact. He wants him to make a pact with the devil. This is a Faustus type of exchange. Uh, some of the great stories are based on this, where a person is willing to exchange something, whatever he wants, the devil offers him, in exchange for worshiping the devil. I think maybe this is why Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the what? The whole world. The whole world. That's what say It's all yours. And loses his what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And Satan's theory is, every man has a price. What will it take? What will it take? What's your price? All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Now look at Jesus' response. First there's a rebuke. Then Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. Just rebukes him. Get out of here. And then he says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. All these verses are verses that were spoken to Israel when they were in the wilderness. And so Jesus says, Here's what the scripture says, You shall worship the Lord your God. And then he adds a word. And him only shall you serve. Because Jesus knows that true worship includes service. True worship includes service. Worship minus service is not worship. That's just giving mouth, voice to say, oh, I worship. But I don't. Well, do you serve? No? Well, then you really don't worship. Real worship includes Service. And whoever you serve is your master. Jesus said, whoever you serve is your master. So, Jesus knows to worship Satan means to what? Serve Satan. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so, what we have here is Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world uh, in exchange for worshiping and serving him. That's what Caesar's doing. Caesar is worshiping and serving Satan with his real life. And uh, Satan is a kingmaker. You know? And he's offering Jesus a shortcut to the kingdom. God's already offered Jesus the kingdom. Hasn't he? 
God's already said, you're my beloved son. You're the king. I'm proclaiming you the king. It's all going to be yours. But to actually obtain it all, you're going to have to die on the cross. And then you, and as they're ready to, as they're ready to take your last breath from you, then you have to just trust me that I'm going to raise you from the dead. And then when you do that, I'm going to set you on the throne right next to me. And everything will be yours. And what Satan is doing, he's basically offering him a shortcut to the kingdom. He's saying, you don't have to die. Now, it's very interesting that Satan drops something in this third temptation. He doesn't say, since you're the Son of God, does he? Now, this one, he just uses the direct approach. You know what? Bow down and worship. I'll give it. It's just a it's just a clear exchange. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. And uh, Jesus quotes the scripture and rebukes Satan, and he succeeds the third time in overcoming the temptation. Now look at the end result, verse 11. Then the devil left him. Notice that. Jesus rebukes the devil, and he leaves him. Jesus overcomes the temptation, and he leaves him. James, Jesus' half-brother, says in James 4.14, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I think James learned that from Jesus' temptation. So the devil left him. And then look at this next phrase, which is very interesting. And behold! Matthew wants to really point this out. He says, look! After the devil left, he wants to tell you, look, look, look what happened next. The angels came and ministered to him. Now, why would you think that would be so important? And since so they ministered to him, the word ministered means they did it on a continual basis. Because Satan said, if you jump, the angels will come and minister to you. Remember that? They'll come down and swoop you up, you won't get hurt. Only you stub your toe. But really, the, would the angels have come and caught Jesus right before he big splash? No. When did the angels come and minister to him? When he's in the will of God. That's when the angels come and minister to him. Okay? So, let me give you a couple lessons from this. Number one, we're, all of us are like Jesus in this sense. It says he was tempted in every way such as we, yet he was without sin. So we know that Jesus' temptations are similar to the temptations that we're going to face. Number one, we will always be tempted to take a shortcut to achieve our goals. A shortcut to achieve our goals. And this shortcut was, well, if you are the Son of God, in other words, based on privilege, based on your connections, based on your family name, based on your favorite position, you can take shortcuts to reach your goal. And you're going to be tempted to do that instead of doing it the old-fashioned way. And, uh, and oftentimes, the temptation will come from a well-meaning person. Say, well, you know, you're a friend of mine, therefore I'm going to give you this position. And that's going to really seem like it's God opening the door. And it may not be God opening the door. It may be the worst thing for you. That's why companies have laws and rules against nepotism. <laughs> you know what that is? Giving your friend a job. Giving your relative a job. Uh, they're getting it based on not on their 
character, not based on their abilities, qualifications, but simply they're getting it because of their connection. The shortcut to reaching a certain goal. And I'm not saying that's always bad to take a job that a relative offers and things like that, but just be aware that we will be tempted to take shortcuts to reach our goal. And therefore start operating under a system called the end justifies the means. Here's my goal, therefore here's the means of getting there. It doesn't matter what the means is, the key is that I get to the goal. The end justifies the means. And does the end justify the means? The end is not justified. Rather, what we're to do is we're to wait on God and to trust Him to provide the right opportunities. See? And so uh, we trust Him to meet our needs. Say, Turn the stones and the bread, meet your own needs, do it like that. We're to trust God to meet our needs. He's the one that gives Israel the manna. He's the one that sends the angels to minister to Jesus. Uh, we trust him to protect us from harm. Jump! Don't worry about it! Because of who you... No, that's tempting God. Just trust him to take care of you. Trust him to promote you. So, the bottom line is we're to live by faith and not by presumption. And Satan tried to presume, get Jesus to presume upon God. To live by faith. When we live by faith, God tests us. He's always testing us. Will you live by faith, Allen Street? Will you live by faith, Jerry Hawkins? Will you live by faith? Will you live by faith? Will you live by faith? And God's always testing our faith. When we act presumptuously, we're testing God. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't test God. So, and then finally, I think what you get out of this passage is that knowing the Word of God is very important. But knowing it correctly. <laughs> Satan knows the Word of God but he does not interpret it correctly. You can say, I believe the Bible is inerrant, fallible, inspired, oh, you know, and quote it wrongly, or misapply it, or interpret it wrongly, and guess what? It doesn't matter whether you believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible, or inspired. Because the moment you misquote it, or you misapply it, it's no longer the word of God that you're quoting. You've twisted it. You're no different than the cultist. We twist the scripture. This is why something called hermeneutics, or how the principles upon which we interpret scripture, are very important to learn. We need to learn hermeneutics. We need to learn to interpret the scriptures correctly. And unfortunately, many, even ministers, do not understand how to correctly interpret the scripture. And so they say a lot of wrong things, and they teach your people a lot of wrong things. You want to know how to interpret scripture? correctly, look at the way Jesus interprets scripture, that's the correct interpretation every time. And so if we follow Jesus' model, we too can overcome the temptations. We don't have to, scripture says, what did Paul say? He says, God has never allowed us to get into a situation to be tempted above that which we can stand, and without opening a door for us to escape. We need to always keep coming back. And so Jesus passed, passes the test. And now, having passed this test, meeting the arch enemy before he launches his ministry, he is now ready to go out into his public ministry. 
And next week we'll pick up at verse 12 where he begins his Galilean ministry. He calls some helpers and then he launches out in preaching and healing uh, and then finally gets into his teaching of the Beatitudes. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you that we can uh, look at Jesus' temptation and see our own. So often, Lord, we want to take the shortcut. We want the easy way. We want uh, to be in privileged positions. We operate on pride and arrogance instead of faith and humility. Oh, Lord, show us that the way of Jesus is the right way to live. We've all failed. We all recognize that. But, Lord, with this scripture today, may we make a, a new resolution to live humbly before you and before others. And to be people of faith, trusting you. And then just waiting and seeing what great things that you will do. You may even send angels to minister to us. So Lord, help us to be faithful and obedient to your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.